Cleveland Browns, as part of the NFL draft, have set up a bunch of social justice forums at Progressive Field. I'm moderating a couple of them today about the innovations that Cleveland and other districts have seen in getting kids to attend school. The Browns started that ball rolling, and it's now become a movement with involvement from Harvard University. Check it out at cleesportsummit.org. There's one S there in Summit. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Layla Atassi. It's draft day. Finally, rainy, like- rainy day. Okay. I feel you like know, we've I saw the movie draft day. It was filmed in Cleveland and it was really sunny and blue sky. So I just figured that's what we'd see. But yeah, yeah, but that movie also has like Kevin Costner driving through Rocky River and then the flats on its way to Seoul. And I mean, so <laughs> that part makes no sense. Yeah, but the good news was at the end of the movie, they drafted a good player. So let's hope that plays out in some real life today. What's sad, but it's not sad, is their their pick is so late. For the first time, pretty much in our lifetimes, because they were good. And when you don't pick first. The price. Well, it'll be very late tonight when we find out who their first round pick is. Let's begin. What is a Franklin County judge's logic in ruling that cities can collect income taxes from people who neither work in nor live in those cities? Layla Tassi, this one really boggles my mind. <laughs> I know. With this logic, I could reach into Irvine, California and say, give me income taxes. <laughs> or take it, I could go to Canada, Laura Johnston, and say, hey, Ontario, pay me income taxes. <laughs> what is this guy thinking? Yeah, I know. The, the Buckeye Institute is obviously going to, they're, they're going to appeal this decision. But the judge in Franklin County dismissed the case against the city of Columbus. And he pointed to uh, the fact that Well, he says that the city was within its legal right to continue collecting income tax from employees who weren't living in the city, weren't working in the city during the pandemic, and in some cases hadn't even set foot in the city in the meantime. And that's because at the start of the pandemic, the Ohio General Assembly passed legislation that permitted cities to continue collecting those taxes during the governor's emergency health orders. But the legislation is designed to sunset, I think, what is it, like 90 days or something after the emergency orders are lifted. The judge in this case said in his ruling that uh, the General Assembly enjoys the authority to establish municipal income allocation rules among Ohio taxing authorities in order to efficiently and uniformly coordinate interstate taxation of Ohio residents. And he said that the two previous cases that were cited in support of this lawsuit didn't apply because neither of those cases addressed the General Assembly's longstanding power to to do this. So those examples were, people would probably remember this from our prior coverage, uh, a lawsuit that was brought against Cleveland by a Chicago Bears football player and another one that was brought by an investor from Florida. Uh, There are other similar cases that are pending against other cities, including one in Cleveland uh, in the Cuyahoga County uh, Court, And uh, oral arguments are scheduled for Tuesday in the Hamilton County case. There's one in Lucas County as well. The Cuyahoga County case against Cleveland is slightly different because it involves that doctor who's been working from home outside of Ohio, actually in in Philadelphia area. So we'll see if that fact that she doesn't, you know, hasn't been in the state uh, affects affects the outcome of this case. But, you know, in the meantime, you know, the Municipal League is trying to get the legislator to extend that special taxing provision through the end of the year. 
you know, that's where I think things get interesting. You know, what happens when that's when that ends and people don't come back to work in the cities, you know, like you, what's going to happen then? You can't take money from people who have no tie to you. I, the judge is out of his mind. He's full of baloney here. He's just going with the populist notion, I guess, to help Columbus. But you can't do it. You, you, you know, if I worked in Cleveland or I lived in Cleveland, you can, but I don't. And so I, I'm stunned that the judge would would put his name on such a preposterous ruling. And I have really no doubt that the Ohio Supreme Court will ultimately make this right because but by that logic cleveland could could fix its fortunes tomorrow just by hey we're going to collect income taxes from everybody in ohio because we can well oh this is laura johnston only if the state legislature says they can right well, <laughs> I mean, that's that's the, his idea the judge's view but the but the legislature is letting cities tax people who don't step foot in them at all and that that's what this legislative um initiative is is being interpreted as and as we've talked before they only did this to help companies avoid a bookkeeping nightmare of figuring out where to withhold taxes for each employee based on where they live this was only supposed to be for the bookkeeping not for the collection of money even right, dewine right. said that when it started and the cities have interpreted it as we got to keep taking money from people who are getting nothing from us and we're getting no services from. So I don't know. We'll see. I, I could even see this going to the U.S. Supreme Court. I could see some constitutional issues in this. I, I have one thought. I, I haven't seen a lot about the suburbs like speaking up about this. I don't know if they're if they filed any briefs in support because you think they'd want the money. They're providing more services to people who are working from home and are, are using their streets and are, you know, just being there more. But I haven't really heard the, those mayors weigh in on this. Certainly the bedroom communities that don't have a lot of employment like Cleveland Heights would be best served. They will make a lot of money if all the people that live there and work in Cleveland stop paying take all those taxes back you know and that and cleveland heights gives a very tiny discount so it's a lot of money that they would have have we have we approached suburban mayors about about how they feel about this uh this issue probably we haven't that's a good idea okay look at that lady was getting right into the spirit of using the podcast to assign stories (laughs) thinking like a true editor layla the columnist you are listening to this week in the cle why is the Black Legislative Caucus in Columbus as suspicious as we are of a Republican move to change the rules voters approved to restrict gerrymandering? Jane Cahoon, we don't trust the Republicans because 10 years ago they got into a secret hotel room and mapped out the mess we have now, which completely screwed up Ohio. So why would anybody trust them to do what they're, they say they want to do now? Well, yes, you've you've just answered the question you posed. You know, perhaps the uh, Legislative Black Caucus has seen this movie before. They have. They've seen what happens when the Republicans push through consequential changes on a compressed timeline with little or no public discussion or input. We've seen it on many issues. So this is about Republican Senator Senate President Matt Huffman his proposal for a constitutional amendment that he wants to put on the August ballot that would allow lawmakers to change the deadline for redrawing state legislative and congressional lines later this year. This is in response to this delay by the U.S. Census Bureau in providing us the necessary data uh, because of the pandemic that that 
got slowed down. So they're not expecting that data until like August or September. But the the Black Caucus says, you know, using this guise of the delay in the data does not justify giving the General Assembly free reign to reconfigure the whole schedule here. And voters approved it, you know, in 2015 and 2018. They re- approved these reforms designed to combat gerrymandering. So Senator Vernon Sykes, for example, said he doesn't think they have enough time to give the proposal proper consideration. And it's just contrary to these reforms that Ohio voters approved. And it would give future legislative majorities the power to shorten these deadlines without any support from the minority in in both chambers. So they are really focused on the public input part of this process. And, you know, they want fair districts and they don't want one political party to gain advantage and to leave black and brown communities out of the the process. So they either want to fix the amendment somehow or just ask the Supreme Court to waive the deadlines. They 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 can support a delay, but they they don't want the timeline to be compressed and and cut out the public input of this. So this is a blow to Huffman, who said he wants excuse me, he wants bipartisan buy-in before putting this amendment on the ballot because he wants it to pass, but he... No way, no. <laughs> I mean, this is just, this is bad lawmaking and we don't trust them. I mean, I'm pretty sure we would come out swinging about what a bad idea this is. There is a backup plan. The backup plan is if they don't make the original deadline, they they have a secondary thing where they make the districts for four years under tighter restrictions. That's the backup. Make the four-year plan, and once you get the full census numbers, you can come back and make the plan for the rest of the six years. But what they're trying to do, after what they did 10 years ago, there is no way anybody should trust Matt Huffman here. This is (laughs) a bad deal for Ohioans. I'm a little suspicious of that four-year thing, though, because that allows them to push it through without the minority support, although they are under some stricter rules. I just don't know how much they can pull, you know, using that, that process. Right. But it's for four years. So at least it's, it's not, look, we've been doomed for the last 10 years by the sleazy antics they pulled last time that Jim Jordan district and that Marcy captor district that defies any, any logic whatsoever. It was all done just to have a Republican, overwhelming disproportionate majority and that's what they want to do again this is all about just trying to maintain the majority and not do what's right for ohioans bad idea you're listening to this week in the cle why do ohio legislators keep trying to get the federal government to kill e-check is this really worth the effort is anybody complaining about e-check Barra johnston I, I haven't complained about e-check. We did get a ex, uh, extension, so we didn't have to deal with it during COVID. But lawmakers have tried a bunch of times to get the federal government to end e-check. Um, and honestly, if they passed one a resolution in February 2020, um, they had one in December. If they couldn't get the Trump administration to get rid of e-check, which is supposed to make our air cleaner, I don't really think they're going to have a lot of luck with the Biden administration. Well, I mean, it's become fairly painless, right? When you do yeah. it, you don't have to pay. You're in and out in in minutes, and it's all about making our air quality better. Why do they keep coming back every other year to with a resolution to call on the federal government to do it? It's it's just, what, why invest the energy in this? I don't get it. 
Well, State Representative Diane Grendel of Geauga County is saying e-check disproportionately affects poorer Ohioans because they're more likely to own older vehicles that can't pass the inspection. She says it's a nuisance um, and that she questioned if it actually helps the environment. But I'm with you. It used to be harder when you had to pay for it and you had to find, um, you know, drive further to a, a place that would do it. I, I feel like it's pretty close now. Um, and I mean, if we're going to improve the air quality, I mean, you can check your iPhone every day, right? And it tells you what the quality is. And if we can make those days better, I'm all for it. And Diane Grendel looking out for poor for the people. Poor. I know, right, yeah, that's, right this is, <laughs> that's what I. That's what really perplexes me. I feel like there's got to be something else at play here. That argument about it, like, since when do a bunch of Republicans look out for policy, look out for the the poor Ohioans' best interest? I feel like uh, you know what'd be interesting to know how many vehicles don't pass the e check. And and is there a way to quantify the impact that that has on on the environment? There's another because, story idea. Well, for yeah. is assigning another story. <laughs> you know, then then we can figure out if 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 the ten million dollars it costs every year to run this program is worth it, right? I did so. I did fail once. I had to go get a new gas cap for my car. Oh yeah, the the gas cap is always the thing. Okay, <laughs> you're listening to this week in the CLE. Who can legally trademark the word the, as in the Ohio University or the Ohio University, uh, Ohio State University? Leila Tassi, this is one of the dumbest stories we've ever This is about. dumb. This is but, so dumb. But, but it's wrapped up in government bureaucracy. I mean, this is, it's gone oh from dumb to the high the high decision makers. So what's going it's on? It's really dumb. So yeah, basically the word the is important to the brands of both the Ohio, the Ohio State University and clothing designer Mark Jacobs, who launched this new line of apparel a few years ago called The Mark Jacobs, using the word the as part of his brand like the grunge sweater and the tote bag. Well, for some dumb reason, both OSU and Mark Jacobs would sometimes use the word the on their products without any other context. That's so pretentious. I'll just, (laughs) (laughs) what the heck? So (laughs) Mark Jacobs applied to the U.S. Patent Office to try to trademark the word the, which prompted OSU to do the same. And OSU got denied because Mark Jacobs beat them to it. So they seem to have arrived at a truce, at least in the meantime, under their new agreement, which Ohio State announced this week, The university and Marc Jacobs will each withdraw their opposition to the other's trademark applications and allow each other to sell the themed merchandise. I didn't know. How could the be a theme? It's so dumb. Anyway, the agreement doesn't limit what types of the products Ohio State and Marc Jacobs can sell, but it makes this distinction that Marc Jacobs products are sold in high-end fashion stores while OSU merchandise is found in athletic and collegiate stores and uh osu faces this other hurdle because the patent office their rejection of their application was also based on their finding that the word the is just ornamental and it doesn't in any way draw an association with the university. OSU disagrees with that, of course. It's preposterous. And, uh, <laughs> I don't even know what else to say article. about this stupid It's dispute. just dumb, and they should reject this right off the bat. It'd be like, <laughs> be like trademarking the letter A. You know, I mean, it's just stop. And... This is Laura Johnston. None of the words in the Ohio State University are like 
just theirs. I mean, we have OU, which is older than OSU, you know, and you can't just put state on a shirt because you have Kent State and Bowling Green State and all these other things. So they picked like the least, you know, uh, descriptive words to try to trademark. You know what? We run the plain dealer. And I think we <laughs> we have a dog in this uh, race here. So uh, we should get involved. And, oh, I have and to just say words this. are our business. So we have a better claim. We Can do. I jump in here? Jane Cahoon. <laughs> I'm I'm old, okay. So when I first started at the plain dealer, uh, there was an old veteran reporter who was just a total character the kind of characters we don't have anymore and he would always answer his phone the plain dealer so that just reminded me of that so I much think we have well, a claim and, and again our words <laughs> so are too. our business it's not the right. business of osu their business our, is football our, and i guess know, education we sh- our guess, banner should now say the instead of anything else. And we'll but see what our happens. style it, on cleveland.com and in the plain dealer is we don't capitalize the the in the Ohio State University. We It's just been our style. That's true. Oh, Although we do capitalize right. it for the plain the dealer. Plain dealer right? All right, let's move on. It's this week in the CLE. How much money did trade groups that compete with nuclear power spend in their failed bid to block the very corrupt House Bill 6, which we now know was passed in a big $60 million bribery scheme paid for by First Energy? Jane Cahoon, these groups now know that what they needed to block this was $60 million of bribes. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't quite make that. I mean, I'm not sure we know the whole amount that was spent, but we do know that some deep-pocketed interests were behind this effort to try to block House Bill 6. Perhaps not just because it was a bad bill, but because it was in their competitive interest to to block it. But in 2019, the American Petroleum Institute gave almost one and a half million dollars. That was nine hundred and seventy five thousand to a group called Ohioans Against Nuke Bailouts and another half a million bucks to Ohioans Against corporate bailouts. That's according to their 2020 tax returns that were obtained and published this week by Environment and Energy Publishing. Now, that group was among the industry competitors who paid a bunch of money, like $4.9 million in TV and radio ads while the legislature was considering passing House Bill 6. That's according to Medium Buying, a Columbus political advertising firm. Uh, and these groups also hired signature gathering firms to to circulate petitions to try to get the issue on the ballot for a repeal. But as we know, they were crushed. They were not successful because of this anonymously funded pro-HB6 campaign, which, as you said, a federal bribery investigation showed largely was funded by First Energy. They thwarted this repeal effort by doing things like hiring petition blockers and circulating like meaningless competing petitions to confuse voters. But um, neither of these anti-HB6 groups disclosed their their donors. Uh, they were they were organized as 501c4 nonprofits. You know, we all, often call them dark money groups because they can spend money influencing politics, but they they don't have to uh, under federal law disclose, you know, their donors. But because they raised money for a possible state issue campaign, state law required them to disclose their backers and They haven't, and they still haven't. The Ohio Elections Commission fined Ohioans against corporate bailouts a bunch of 
money since they missed the deadline and they apparently haven't paid. But, you know, we did find out about this through this tax filing. So uh, and the Petroleum Institute said, you know, it opposed HB6 because it was flawed and it was nothing but a bailout at the expense of ratepayers. So it's kind of hard to argue with that. all true, but <laughs> right. now we know that they should have spent bribe money. What a what an industry of cash. It's this week in the CLE. What are the top 15 high schools in Northeast Ohio? Laura Johnston, people love these ratings, partly because we have some very good high schools in Northeast Ohio. Who are they and what surprises do we see? Not a lot of surprises on this list. You'd think that with the pandemic completely upending education, we would have seen some flip-flops. But no, the U.S. News and World Report list has some very familiar names on it this year. Um, These schools are schools that demonstrated above-average scores in math and reading state assessments. They earned uh, a bunch of qualifying scores on AP or IB college-level exams, and they had high graduation rates. I think most of these are about 99%. So number one, Solon High School. Number two, Chagrin Falls. Number three, Hudson High School. I'm going to need – these are how we did – in Northeast Ohio. Solon ranked fifth in the state. Chagrin Falls ranked eighth. Hudson ranked 10th. Um, but yeah, we, we don't do too bad. Cincinnati has the higher schools um, statewide, though. I'll say that. And then some Cleveland high schools. Yes. Well. John, John Hay Early High School is eighth in Northeast Ohio, 25th in the state. And their College of Science and Medicine, sorry, High School of Science and Medicine, uh, ranked 50th in the state. I'm not sure how it did totally in Northeast Ohio, but yeah, John Hay ranked really well last year too. So that is a high quality uh, Cleveland CMSD school. Yeah, that's very cool. And okay. um, I put it say my my alma mater, Revere, is 12th on the list. So um, I was good to <laughs> glad to see that. I'm right, I'm yeah. so interested in 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 the success of that high school, John Hay. John Hay. Yeah, don't, I mean, wouldn't that make such a good profile? Oh my gosh, you keep coming up with a story. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't plan that. No, I I mean, that would be so, I would love to know more about, you know, who gets into that school, who's the student body, who's teaching them, you know, what is the secret sauce in that school? Because Laura, you were saying that this isn't the first time that John Hay has made the list and and has ranked so high. I mean, this school's 25th in the state. And right. Then, and there's two there in the same building that are doing really well because obviously they've gone to those small high schools. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think, you That's know, so we talk a lot about Solon, you know, it ranks top in our area and what makes them a great school. But you're right. John Hay probably has a higher, um, a harder road, you know, to make this, right. their school great. And they're doing it really well. Hmm. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. It's draft day. We got to talk about it. It's in Cleveland. Is the NFL draft in Cleveland today going to be the first one in the outdoor era where the weather does not cooperate? Leila Tassi, when it was in Philadelphia, the weather was spectacular. When it was in Chicago, the pictures were all to die for. If we would have had the draft on Tuesday, it was 80 (laughs) and beautiful. What are the chances (laughs) that the skies will open up and our good luck with big events will continue with the weather? Well, it seems that Mother Nature agrees with me that the NFL draft is is an event best enjoyed at home <laughs> on the TV. <laughs> but no, I'm just kidding. I This is obviously a big moment for the city. It's a chance to show off on the world stage. It would be really nice to have some great weather for it. So, so Cleveland weather cooperated for the Cavs parade. It cooperated for the Republican National Convention. Both of those were in 2016. We all remember those events were a little little sweltering but the skies were clear and blue 
For this event, we're expecting rain today, but perhaps by the time the evening rolls around, fans may just have to deal with a little drizzle or maybe it will, you know, the skies will will clear up. Uh, the National Weather Service is saying that by about 3 p.m., the heaviest precipitation should be gone and light showers are still possible into the evening. But the draft runs through Saturday and Friday and Saturday are forecast to be dry so far with highs in the low to mid 50s Friday and and around 60 on Saturday. That's so pleasant. That's that's like lovely <laughs> Cleveland spring weather. And, um, you know, if, if there is a severe weather, you know, if, if severe, severe weather crops up, dra- draft organizers said that they'll just move the event inside the Great Lakes Science Center, which you know, obviously you, we miss out on, on all the great views of Cleveland uh, on TV, but, uh, but I don't think we're going to have to face that. I think it's going to, I think it'll stay quite mild and lovely. And just maybe the clouds <laughs> will part and the sun will shine as yeah. they get ready to announce those first picks. Let's hope so anyway. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're a month away, but how will people be able to commemorate Memorial Day this year as we emerge from the pandemic? Lord Johnston, last year, Memorial Day came hard on the beginning of the shutdowns, and there were no Memorial Day celebrations, commemorations, parades, anything. Will there be a difference this year? Yes, there will be. We're not just talking virtual events, but we're not quite back to those you know, big Memorial Day parades. I used to live in University Heights and the parade would go right down my street. They are not doing that this year. They're hoping to have it on July 4th, further cementing Chris Quinn's plan that the world will open up for July 4th. But uh, Westlake seems to be the only one that's going totally back to normal this year. They're going to have their annual Memorial Day parade starting at St. Peter and George Coptic Orthodox Church. Plenty of uh, cities are going to have cemetery observances and small gatherings outdoors where people are socially distanced. And uh, Broadview Heights is going to have their drive-through parade again, where you drive your car through the parade. So they they set it up and there'll be like a band and and other um, things you can see from your car. Okay. That, that sounds interesting. <laughs> I, I, the, the question for me is, will there be fireworks July 4th? Because that would be the big opening. Joe Biden has hinted that July 4th would be the grand reopening. We'll have to see if that turns out. We have a few months to go. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I have no idea how long we've gone today because we've had a battery of technical difficulties. We'll see if it's short. I'm sorry. If it's long, I'm sorry. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.